by way of introduction, so you know a little bit about me, um, my wife had several nevers in life, okay? So you know what a never is, was when you say to God, never, okay? Not, and my wife wasn't rebellious, she didn't say, um, I'm never going to do this. It's just like, no, I'm never going to do that. So number one was that she'll never marry Jonathan Martin, okay? I'm so glad she said that never, because it guaranteed it would happen. So no. So she'd never marry Jonathan Martin. She would never live in China, never move to China, and she would never work with Muslims. So you can guess where she ended up, working with Muslims in China, married to Jonathan Martin. And she had another never, and that was she never wanted to be a pastor's wife. So for the last 15 years, I've been a pastor. And, um, but she never said that never, because she realized saying it guaranteed it's coming true. So anyway, I've had the opportunity after working with Muslim people groups in China to actually travel around the world and work with different mission teams on the ground in all kinds of crazy places. Tomorrow my wife and I are leaving for the Middle East and then to Portugal. And so the opportunity to see the church around the world, what God is doing, has just been amazing. And I wanted to start with the story that took place in an area of northeastern Uganda, a place called Karamoja. Anybody hear of Karamoja? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. Okay, we got one person here. If you type Karamoja in on your search engine, up comes this old movie from the 50s. And it's the most primitive people group that they could find in the 50s. And it was, the advertisement was rather risque. It says, Karamoja, where they wear nothing but the wind. Okay, because it was just this people group that was so backwards, no clothes, nothing. Well, Karamoja went into a period of war. They ended up, um, they used to attack people with their spears and, and arrows and were completely primitive, and the Brits kept them that way. And then Idi Amin came over and was, had an army out there and was indiscriminately killing them. And when Idi Amin was chased from power, suddenly this Karamojong had guns, and they became powerful. And they raided all the cattle around them and the neighboring tribes. So when I went there just a little over 10 years ago, the only way you could travel across this place, because it was a war zone, an internal civil war, intertribal warfare, 800,000 people live out there, and there were 200,000 AK-47s. Okay, think about that. You think gun control's a problem here. There. And 200,000 AK-47s, they'd been at a state of war, internal war, for 20 years, the only way you could travel across is you had this, and you could see this, a gun turret and then 20 cars and a gun turret behind. So they would drive across, the Ugandan army would drive these convoys across with all this weaponry, and that was the only thing that could keep the Karamajong at bay. If you drove across alone, you would end up dead, except for one gal. She graduated from school right here in Corvallis with her veterinary degree. She could drive across alone. Okay, why? Well, because they loved her because she loved them. In fact, how did she love them? She loved their animals. So they knew who she was. One time, accidentally, they didn't know it was her, and she was attacked. God miraculously delivered her. But we were with her. So we're in her car, and she told us about this attack that had happened to her. That's real encouraging as we're driving around this place alone. Um, in fact, well, I'll get to that in a, in a second. But 
we were out in the day, and in the day you're safe. Night is when you're really not supposed to be out, and we got a flat tire, and it got darker and darker, and we had to leave one car there, and nine of us piled into this other vehicle, and we were driving back to this little town, and she goes, oh, yeah, this is the place I was attacked. Well, thank you very much. Um, in fact, uh, it, how miraculous it was, there were a whole bunch of people in the back of her car, and they unloaded at least 100 rounds into her car as she was getting, backing up and ch getting chased away, and everybody's screaming in the back, and she goes down to the, to the army place, uh, an army barracks for safety, and she pulls in to see who's been killed, who's been injured, and there was not one bullet mark on her car, and nobody was hit. Absolute supernatural, super, I mean, she was protected, a bubble around her, because she saw the fire coming out of the guns, and they were aimed right at the car. So, yet, the elders came out because she thought, maybe I should leave after that happening. And they said, no, we didn't know it was you. We promised the young men that did this didn't know it was you. So now she would mark her car. She has these big horns, the cow horns on the front of her car to mark her car. But the, one, the car with the cow horns was the one that went flat. So we were not in the car with the cow horns. And we're driving across at night. And we're coming to this little town. It was really pretty terrifying because... We'd just seen the convoys during the day, and now the worst time we could be out is at night, and people are killing one another. And we come into this little town, and it's like a Wild West town. And dirt streets, and you know, it, it really, you expected to have a gunfight out in the middle of that town. And it was dark, and we stopped for dinner, and we went into this little corner restaurant, only has candles burning, because nobody dares try to take electricity out there, or you'll get killed. Only candles burning in this little town, and we order our one thing that's on the menu, which is chicken and rice. And it takes a while because the chicken has to be killed out back, and then they bring the chicken in, and so we're sitting there. And they bring the chicken and rice, and guess what else they brought out? Any guess? Guess what they brought us to drink? Coca-Cola. And I go, here's a place where the gospel is just coming to this place. And Coca-Cola's already here. Who is going to risk their life to get Coca-Cola to this place? And, and I'm thinking, what is with this company? Well, why is Coca-Cola, and I'm going, why is Coca-Cola here in the middle of nowhere? When I was in China, the first Western product to reach into China back in the 80s was what? The answer's not Jesus, okay? It's Coca-Cola, Okay. All over the world, it's the first product, product to get in. Why is it the first product? You tell me. It was, it was all about Coca's marketing, Coca Cola's marketing strategy. Way back when, they said, We will be in every country. They made that decision. And that goal of being in every country, in every place in every country, They've really done that. I still, I don't know if they're in North Korea or not, but I would be surprised that they're not. Their goal is, if they're not there, they're, they're still beating on the doors. They're trying to get in there because that's what they do, and they try to get into every town. Their goal is world dominant with, with a product, you guys, that is really bad if you think about it, okay? Have you ever had Coca-Cola that lost its fizz and you can actually taste what it tastes like? Oh, it's terrible, okay? I was there when the Chinese at first came to China, and I watched the Chinese drink it. 
it was always spitted out on the ground, always. It's like, oh, this is terrible. And then three years later, they're all addicted to it. It's amazing the marketing they have. They make you like something that's bad for you. It's sugar. It can dissolve a nail when you drop it in, like I don't know how many days it takes, but the nail disappears. So it's caramel-colored, sugary, bad for you. There's nothing good in it. It doesn't taste good the first time you drink it. You think it did because you don't remember the first time because you were a baby, <laughs> probably out of your bottle, okay? Um, <laughs> Mama ran out of milk and just stuck Coke in there, so you think it tastes good. So we're... We've learned to like this terrible product, and now it's because of marketing, it's gone all around the world. Now, I, I say that because we were called 2,000 years ago to take Jesus to the ends of the earth. You guys, it still hasn't happened. How can a terrible project, product like Coca-Cola um, that really has no redeeming value at all, make it to the ends of the earth, and Jesus still not be there. I've been places, I've been in Tibet, and we asked um, some people in the monastery, have you heard of who Jesus is? And they started talking amongst themselves and didn't know who he was at all. And that's pretty common, that the name is not even known. And where the name is known, nothing about him is known. And yet the calling of the church from the very beginning and what Chase read for us is the Great Commission. Okay, Great Commission, Matthew 28. It's a passage really that every believer should have memorized. So in, in a sense right now we're going to go through it and you're going to sort of memorize it with me. It's the mission of the church. Christ hands it over, hands it to us, and says, this is your mission. And here's what he says. Jesus has died, risen again, and as he's risen, he's, he brings his disciples around him, and he commissions them. And as you notice on the word commission, the word mission is there. And here's what he says. The completeness of this commission is absolutely astounding. He, he starts off by saying, all authority has been given to me. But that's not all he says. All authority from where? In heaven and on earth. In case you're wondering, all authority, how much, like, whose authority? All authority in on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So say that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's what Jesus said. So then he turns to his disciples. He's the one with the authority, and he's giving it to his disciples. And he says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Okay. So, of whom? All nations. What does the word nation mean? I mean, it means something to us as Americans, but what does it mean in the Bible? nation. Okay, it's interesting. A nation is just a, is, is like a family, a people group, a tribe, and sometimes the Bible parses it out and never says every tongue, tribe, and nation. So it's not just the political boundaries, it's all the people groups, all the tribes, all the tongues, all the nations. Go make disciples of, go therefore make disciples of all nations. Now some have interpreted this means that as you're going, make disciples, right? Have you ever heard that one? 
okay, you're, as you're going. But the problem is, is, are we going to Afghanistan? Does that happen as you're going? Or do you have to intentionally go? You see, if we interpret it that way, and, and here's what it means. It, it, it does mean as you're going, make disciples, but it means more than that. If I say something like to you, go to the store. If my wife says to me, go to the store and get some milk. Okay, what's her main command? Go to the store or get some milk? Get the milk, and what do I have to do in order to get the milk? Go to the store. And it's the same thing here. It's go and make disciples of all nations. What's the main command? Is it go or make disciples? Make disciples of all nations. And in order to do that, what do you have to do? Go. So the church has to be going. It was pretty cool. I got onto your website, and I went to right there to the purpose of this church, boom, to make disciples of all nations. Do you realize if you go around to most church people that have been in church their whole life long, and you say, what's the purpose of the church? Do you, do you know how many do not come up and say, man, it's to make disciples of all nations? When it was pretty clear when Jesus said, boom, this is your commission. This is now that I've done my work, your work I'm handing it to you. Make disciples of all nations. Now we go, well, what does that mean, Jesus? And then he describes it. Okay, make disciples of all nations, and then he says, what? He, he breaks that down. How do we make disciples? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So in everything that God is, you baptize them into this. So baptizing, it's, a, it's really a picture of getting them going in their spiritual life, getting them to understand who God is, taking mankind, putting him back into relationship with God, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? That's not over. Once you get them baptized, once you get them going, once they understand and know and have received Jesus and have the Holy Spirit, it's not over What's the other part of making disciples? Teaching them everything I've commanded you, right? Am I right? Actually, I'm wrong. It's not what it says, teaching them everything I've commanded you. What does it say? Teaching them to observe. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Okay, how many of you could teach everything that Jesus said? I mean, we can't even teach it. Yet this task is to take everything that Jesus taught his disciples and to go and not just teach it to others, teach them to do it. Jesus says, hey, uh, the foolish man hears my words and doesn't do them. The wise man builds his house on the rock. He hears them and does them. So this piece, this task is monumental. It's all nations, we've been, all authority has been given to Jesus. Go to all nations, baptize in everything that God is, and teach them to observe and obey everything Christ has commanded. Whoa, this is a huge task. And then at the very end, Jesus says what? And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Now, some people have come up along through the years and goes, well, that was a commission to the disciples. 
It's not a commission to every believer. It's not a commission to every church. It was for the disciples. Okay, thumbs up or thumbs down? Yeah, I see the thumbs down. Good, you guys are well trained around here. What do you mean thumbs down? Why is that for every believer? Why is it not just for the disciples? A lot of people have argued this. Okay, one thought is, lo, I am with you even to the ends of the age. Did the disciples make it to the end of the age? Or is that age still continuing? Okay, do you see what I'm saying? That age is not done, and the disciples are, well, they're done, okay? But their work's not done because we've believed through them, and that task to the ends of the age to accomplish this is still going on. And have all nations been reached? No. Did the disciples reach all nations? No. But then, on top of this, Jesus clearly says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what is he doing right there? Commanding them. So that's the last and final, the grand finale commandment. Are they supposed to teach that to their disciples too? Yeah, Jesus just said they were. So there's no escaping it. This is the church's mission. But let me tell you, it's not just Jesus coming up with some grand commission. This great commission has been since the very beginning. Okay, listen to this. How many of you know the first command in the Bible that's read in chapter 1? When God first speaks to, to man and woman in chapter 1, what is it? What does he say? Someone's got it. It's a commission. It's a great commission. And I want you to hear and think of the parallels right here. Ready? It says this. He says, first of all, he created man and woman in his image, okay? Male and female, he created them. Both are created in his image. And then he turns to them as they are in God's image, sinless. He turns to them and says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay, let's go back to the Great Commission. Make disciples of all nations. Hey, that's be fruitful. Have spiritual children is what that's saying. Disciples are spiritual children. Look at Paul. What did he call Timothy? My son, my child. So be fruitful, multiply, make disciples is being fruitful, it's having spiritual children, and then they having spiritual children, it's multiplying. This is the same command, you guys. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Okay? And subdue it. Whoa. You know what's remarkable about that term? Let me tell you what's remarkable about this term. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, um, How many of you were raised in the church? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you were not raised in the church? Raise your hand. Okay. So I can influence you who weren't raised in the church. The rest, the rest of you are stuck in your ways. No. Um, so let me just quiz all of you who are raised in church. You grew up in church in the Garden of Eden, a good place, or a really good place, you know, okay place, good place, really good place, or a perfect place. Perfect place. That's how we're raised. Perfect place. So I have a question for you. Then what in the, pardon the language, but you'll see why. What in the hell was Satan doing there? 
How does a perfect place have the most evil, the, the author of evil in the universe? There. Is that a perfect place? Suddenly you go, whoa, mind blown, okay? I wondered this. Why is Satan in the garden? Now, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. This word subdue is a warfare term. You go back and look all through the Old Testament how it's used, and it's used in this warfare sense. So the Garden of Eden was an amazing place. All of man's and woman's needs were met. What needs needed to be met? What needs Maslow's hierarchy of needs? What needs to be met? Go ahead, help me out. Okay, we need to have food. Was that there in the garden? Yes. Clothing. <laughs> you don't need it in the garden. Climate control. It's wonderful, okay? So need for relationship and family. Is that there? Yes, okay? So we have relation, relationship with God. Was that there? Yes, everything man could ever want and need was there. And it was there that he was told, with all of his needs met, to go to war. But who's the enemy? Well, we see him show up, don't we, in chapter 3. Subdue the earth. You tell me, who has subdued the earth? Who does the Bible teach the whole world is under the control of the evil one. When they refer to the world, do not love the world and the things of this world, who is the one that's operating this world? Satan. He's called the prince of this system, of this world. Do you see, we were commissioned to take the goodness and image of God out, and who took his image who became the father of human beings from that point on? And Jesus goes right up to the Pharisees and he goes, you are of your father, the, the devil. Do you see what happened? The Garden of Eden, as great as it was with all of man's needs being met, when he faced off with Satan, mankind fell. We actually didn't just fall. We didn't just fail. We actually sided with the enemy. It's really interesting. Where else do you see be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth in the Bible? Anybody else know the next time it's seen? Noah. Do you know what's conspicuously absent from that command? It's be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. There's no subdue. It's left out. Why? It's been subdued, you guys, and it's clear. Noah and his family, the most righteous family, the most righteous man, gets there, and immediately upon arriving on this, this dry land and restarting, sin is there right away. His sons do something so abominable, the Bible doesn't even tell us what it was. Okay? And so we see that Satan indeed has subdued this earth. Now I'm going to fast forward you. Well, let's go to... Chapter 3 in Genesis says, hey, yes, this is horrible. What's happened is awful. But from the woman's seed, which is, by the way, a very unusual term, because if you know the Hebrew, which I don't, I just know enough to know about the Hebrew, okay. I do know that this word seed is actually always used for the male. In fact, it's synonymous with the stuff that makes babies. 
So to call, say a woman has a seed, you don't do that. It, it doesn't happen. That's not the way it works. But here it says, from the woman's seed, one is coming. And what is the promise? What is the promise of Jesus? That it says, you, the serpent, as the serpent's curse is being pronounced, as Satan's curse is being pronounced, it says, you will what? You will bruise his heel, but he will, and it's the same word repeated back, bruise your head. So this, someone's coming that's going to go after this serpent, and it's coming from a woman's seed. Bizarre promise, but it's right there at the very beginning. So who do we know as, we, as we're entering into Christmas season, now that it's November 3rd, okay? Um, <laughs> Who do we know, who do we know that came from a woman's seed? Jesus, born of a virgin. So let's fast forward, and this is fascinating. So Jesus, he starts his life and up to the age, in his 30s, what does he do? What's his job? Carpenter, working with his dad. He starts his ministry, he goes down and he's baptized by John the Baptist, Plunged under by J the B, pulls him up, okay? Pulls him up, and immediately the, the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. Whatever that was, it had to be cool, okay? And the heavens speak. And then, what is Jesus' first mission? Does anybody know the first thing he does as we go and read these passages? Immediately, the Spirit leads him somewhere. Where? To the wilderness. Okay, you guys, think of the contrast. The garden. Adam and Eve face off against the enemy, and they fail. As soon as Jesus is anointed to do his ministry, the first thing he does is he is led to the wilderness, and it says, to be tempted by Satan. The Spirit leads him into the wilderness. Okay, how many of... The contrast, the garden, all of the needs being taken care of. The wilderness, how many needs are being taken care of? Food? Forty days without food. At his weakest, near death, and then Satan comes to him. Relational needs met? You know, safety needs met, all these things met? None of these needs are met, and yet he's out there, and he faces off with Satan and in the same three ways that Satan tempted mankind, he tempts Jesus, and Jesus stands firm. And Satan has to flee him. And then the angels come and minister to Jesus, and he declares he has authority. He has victory. The contrast, it's like, when I first saw that, I go, what kind of literary geniuses came up with this thing? That's brilliant. And I realized, oh, it's fishermen that didn't even know how to write, right? Okay, when you read the, the New Testament, it's genius, this picture and contrast between these two. And yet, that's what God did to show us that Jesus had authority. So Jesus comes. He lives his life victorious over the evil one. And yet, he bears the punishment that we deserve. The one, for a second here, try to imagine somebody, a, a being in the universe, 
higher than God. Go ahead and try to imagine. Go. Okay, what did you come up with? God. Because you go higher than God, it's just still God, right? Okay? Because he's the highest being in the universe. So God, through the person of Jesus, came down. And he came down to our level? Yes or no? Actually, way below our level, because he came at a time in history before antibiotics. How many of you have had an appendicitis, appendix removed? Anybody in here? Okay, you're dead, you're dead, you're not even here anymore. In the time that Jesus, <laughs> in the time that Jesus was here, anybody with appendicitis died. Any diabetics here? Okay, you're dead, okay? Anybody? I could go on and on. Half of you wouldn't even be here. Babies, half of them died at birth. The pain and misery that he came into that's the level he came, but he didn't just live there amongst us. He went down another notch. He died a criminal's death, naked, being cursed by the very tongues that he created. But he didn't, that's on the worst instrument of torture ever devised, the evil hearts of mankind have devised, and that's what he's hanging on. But he went lower than that. He took our sins upon himself. You can't imagine anything lower than what Jesus did. The God of gods coming down and taking the depths of depravity upon himself and paying that penalty. This picture of what Jesus did. And then he comes. After he's victorious and rises from the, the grave, he commissions his men. And did they hear it, you guys? Yeah, they heard it. I was just in Afghanistan a little over a year ago. This one guy from um, felt like he was called to be a missionary in Afghanistan. And I go, you've got to be hearing wrong. Because when I was there, it's not a place you want to live, you guys. Kabul is not a friendly place. He had this amazing ministry going on in Mongolia, but God's calling him. And he comes in to Afghanistan, and the first day he's there, the organization he wants to join, a doctor and his son and grandson went into a hospital, and the guard turned on him and blew him up, and they were members of the same organization. So are you going to join this organization that just lost three people the first day? I think that's a sign from the Lord that you're supposed to go back, right? And he says, No. I'm called to this place. And do you know who he's called to? He goes down to the bridge, and there's opium addicts under the bridge. And he goes amongst them, and some of them have, some of their dead bodies in there all the time, and they don't even know who's dead because they're so stoned. And he offers them hope. He has this home. And he says, you guys come to dinner, and then he presents the program he has, and he brings, it's like modeled after Teen Challenge. He, he sees people redeemed from this pit, and he knows any day he's likely to be shot and blown up because he's lost several friends, missionary friends, who've been killed. See, this is, the, this is getting this great commission. This is at its heart. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, did he crush the serpent's head? Everybody's going, this is a trick question. I can tell by the looks. Did he crush the serpent's head? Let me read something to you out of Romans. Turn to Romans 16. Put it this way. Is Satan dead yet? 
or is he alive and well in this world? When Jesus calls us into this world, he, he talked about the ushering in of his kingdom. And we are to be building his kingdom and taking over the kingdom of darkness. He has taken us out of the kingdom of darkness and we are now in his amazing kingdom of light. In Romans chapter 16, whose job is it to crush the head? Look at Romans chapter 16, it, in verse, um, verse 18. And I want you guys to tell me if you hear any references back to the first, chapter, first chapters of Genesis. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. Hmm, somebody got in trouble with an appetite once upon a time. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Does that refer back to anything that you guys might be familiar with? For your obedience, he's talking to the church in Rome, is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. Wow, obedience. That's not something we usually praise, but it's what Jesus did in the wilderness and what Adam didn't do in the garden. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What is that referring to? 100% the garden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. And then listen to this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Always. <laughs> Do you see our calling, you guys? It's, it's huge. It's the whole world. It's making disciples and pouring out everything we've learned and walked and how all the mistakes we've made, it's pouring it into the next generation. All the successes we've had, encouraging them with those, building into them Jesus and seeing Jesus formed in them they hand it to the next generation, to the next generation. Always looking to the ends of this planet and praying for people who are under the bridges in Afghanistan, Kabul, working with the addicts. I started off a story about this gal, graduated from right here. She embedded herself in this war zone for 13 years. She did not write home the full story of what was going on to her sending churches. Can you tell me why? We, we're Americans. We would have brought her home. You can't be there. It's too dangerous. She lived there for 13 years, and she, she told me what a raid was like, a cattle raid, because they were always fighting each other. She says about 8 o'clock at night, no, about 10 o'clock at night, it's been dark for a few hours, you hear a, a gunshot. <laughs> Then you hear a return volley, pum, 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 and pretty soon it's an all-out war, and you hear people screaming. She climbed. They wouldn't let her live in amongst them unless she had cement walls in her hut. Why? To keep the bullets out. But she would climb out of bed. She would get onto the floor. 
because her windows were right at that bullet level and she would cry herself to sleep as this war is going on because she knows the next morning she has to go out and see which of her friends is dead. One time she went out and her best friend had bled to death on her doorstep, couldn't get there in time. She had been hit by a stray bullet, couldn't get there. She lived in this for 13 years. I said, Val, how often did a raid like this occur? And she goes, two or three times a week. How did you stay there? Well, she, she said, I know God was going to do something. And he, 35 attempts by UNICEF, by the UN, by the Ugandan army, by the Ugandan government. She saw 35 attempts at peace. They all failed, 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 escalating into more violence. But she believed God was going to do something, so she stayed there for 13 years. And the time came. And she brought some gray hairs from the United States because her being a woman, these guys didn't know what to do with her. It's like she's way smarter than we are, but she brought these gray hairs. They trusted her implicitly. Anybody that would represent her, they would listen to. So it was the gray haireds talking to the gray haired elders in the village who came together from this tribe and this clan. This guy, they have notches on their shoulders of how many people they killed. I've seen one guy with 21 notches. And it's not bragging, it's actually a purification ritual because they know it's bad to kill people, but they do it and they have to purify themselves by cutting themselves and spreading ash into it. So these men came together. Now he has killed this person's family members and he has killed this person's wife and child. Can you imagine coming in the same room, the anger and the hatred? But the gospel was proclaimed in these men as our whole church was over here on our knees praying for this meeting. They repented, they embraced each other in peace, and they put down their guns. And they went back out and told others to do the same. When I was there the first time, I went to church, only women over 80 years old and children under 15. Nobody in between. I went year after year working with the pastors, and every year I saw changes and changes. And pretty soon, those convoys weren't needed with gun turrets in the front and in the back. Pretty soon, almost everybody gave up their guns voluntarily. Cattle raiding stopped almost completely, but still guys would try. People would actually now, today, the last time I was there, they actually go put, these little kids would go out and put their cow out there for someone to come steal because they know he's, the guy who steals it's going to get caught and he has to pay back three times as many. So they're putting them out. Everybody is, everybody is, is being changed. The churches are filled. They're multiplying God, what nobody could do, what no man could do. 35 failed attempts God did with the power of the gospel. It's the most amazing story. I can tell, I usually tell the story, it takes me an hour. Because what God did there, the gospel changes things. It's the, oh, I, I told the story one time, the long version, to a guy who wasn't a believer, and he goes, wow, that's really cool. I just don't think it has to be done in the power of the gospel. Why, why does it have to be Jesus? And I go, well, you go forgive the guy who killed your mama in the power of atheism. You know, I didn't quite say it that sarcastically. But he got the point. If you don't understand what you've been forgiven, you have no power.
to forgive others. When you understand the depths in these 21 marks on your shoulders that God forgave in the person of Jesus, then you rejoice and you put down your gun like one guy did, and he goes, this is my new gun. And he's, he's an evangelist. He is, this guy has reached so many people for Jesus, even though he has four wives. Isn't that cool? God can use somebody that already had four wives, comes to faith in Jesus, puts down his gun, and becomes an evangelist. It's pretty amazing. So things are complex there, but God is moving. Churches are filling. Churches are multiplying, and peace has finally come, all because of the Great Commission. Now, this gal, Val Sheen is her name. She refused to go in and preach the gospel until she had a, an army of people who could do discipleship because it's not just, it's not just baptizing them. It's grounding them in everything that Jesus is in everything that he taught us. So let me encourage you guys. The Great Commission, start by memorizing it. And then say, what is my role? He does not call everybody overseas. Thank goodness. Some people don't belong overseas. Um, there was one guy one time, she goes, yes, she was seeing how he lived in China. She goes, for me to live there, that would be hell. And I go, I don't want you on my team. You stay here and pray, okay? Um, but she did. She stayed and prayed. And the irony is that gal has become a missionary. And she's awesome at what she does. Um, God's amazing. And he wants our total involvement. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your great commission. Thank you that you give us your mission. Lord, as one guy said, the church not on mission is like a fire without a flame, a fire without warmth, which is no fire at all. And I pray for this church that it would be a church on mission, that we would be about seeing the ends of this earth and peoples that have never heard reached with the amazing power, the transformational power that can cause one person to forgive the murderer of his wife and children and the two to become friends. Lord, thank you for reconciling us, your enemy, to yourself. We praise you, and may we be involved in that same business. Amen.